Well, you may have noticed if you were here last week in our inaugural meeting that uh, sermons here are a little shorter than they are in other kinds of churches. But still, I know some of you worry about sermons and they can be a little bit boring. So I thought that over the rest of this launch series that we'll be doing through the end of October, that every week I would just give you two or three tips, things to do during a boring sermon. Are you ready? So here's your first two tips, things to do during a boring sermon. Number one. Pass a note to Eddie asking whether or not he plays requests. <laughs> or how about this one? Slap your neighbor. See if they turn the other cheek. <laughs> if not, raise your hand and tell the preacher. <laughs> so there you go, a couple of tips just in case sermon gets boring. All right, you could, you could see that our readings today were uh, uh, about relationships. And the first thing that you see is that human beings are by nature and by creation social. That is to say, sometimes we're tempted to say, well, this is just between God and me. And you know, what we usually mean to say by that is, and like not you, like it's a way of holding people off and saying like, I don't want anything to do with you or I don't want you having anything to do with this. That's normally what we mean when we say something like, hey, this is just between me and God. But the truth of it is, if you think about it, strictly speaking, there's nothing just between you and God because you have no way of being except for social. In other words, think about it. There is no you apart from the way you are sort of defined and described by your relationships. I mean, we are by nature social beings. Why? Because we're created in the image of a social God, right? For us Christians, God is what? It's not a test, just play with me here. Trinity, right? And so way before there was space-time continuum, way before there was galaxies and universes and that sort of thing, before there was any space and any time, there was God. Well, what is God? Well, God is this social Trinitarian being, and it's that being who created us into essentially social people. That's why when Adam named all the animals and looked around and saw that there wasn't anything for him, he realized that there was something incomplete. And of course, he was right. Now, kind of like I did last week, I'm gonna give you some sort of relational tips that you might hear on Oprah or you know, Dr. Phil or something. But again, we're gonna sort of race right by that because we know that just because you hear a tip from Dr. Phil doesn't mean you can execute on it. It doesn't mean you can actually do it, why? Because for us to actually be the kind of people we want to be in our relationships, I want you to catch this. We have to be the kinds of people who would. In other words, you cannot have sort of ethical, solid, healthy relationships of any kind. Friends, parents, teachers, uh, spouses together. Whatever kind of relationship you can think of, you can't have those be good sort of by direct effort. Some of you have heard me say before, it's sort of funny, you know, but, you know, being back here in Southern California and being on the freeway all the time, or well, I, I like to call the 405 a parking lot, but whatever. Um, you know, people cutting you, you know, for living in uh, Idaho all those years, you know, it's a little saner. You get back down here again and people are, you know, very aggressive and cutting in and out. Well, when you find yourself just really wanting to give somebody the finger, if you have to do this, like, oh, no, I want to give you the finger so bad, but I'm not going to. Well, you see, that's, that's what, like, direct effort. And, and you can't really do that because eventually you're going to give somebody the bird. What you have to do 
is become the kind of person for whom condemning somebody on that level is just not an option to you. You would never even think of it. Because otherwise, as soon as your wife ticks you off or you know, somebody, your boss ticks you off, you're just gonna act out of who you really are. You can only suppress that for so long. And here's the tragic thing. If you get good at suppressing it, you're probably gonna become one of those really unkind, narrow religious people who no one likes. That's who the Pharisees were. That's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're still far from the kingdom. This is exactly what he had in mind. He said, as long as you're trying to act in a way that you're actually not, like that's okay, that's a kind of righteousness. It's better than actually flipping people off or cussing them out. But it's not what Jesus was shooting for. Jesus was shooting for a kind of inner transformation in which our relationships would all be redeemed and reclaimed and made good, that we would all know that we are for one another. I mean, think about that. What if, what if solid relationships just got down to being for one another? Now, I know there's a, at least a couple of therapists in this room and seminary professors and people who you know, do this kind of stuff, doctors and nurses, and, and you know that, that there's something that especially every therapist knows. Some people never recover from even one instance of serious verbal abuse. They never recover. Many of them, they go to therapy, they go to church, they have a spiritual friend, they do something to work on it. And, and sometimes at best, they can just sort of cope with life. But they never really come to the feeling that my relationship with another, that that person is for me. And that's a very healing, huge thing. This is a big part of what's going on in the garden with Adam and Eve coming together. It's a big part of what God had in mind for men and women coming together in marriage, that there would be at least one place where you knew this person is for me. And that life isn't this place where I have to be afraid of verbal abuse or people withdrawing their love from me. Some people literally never get over that. It harms them for their whole life. So, all right, if that's the case, and actually I wanna add one more thing. This is really important to me. Um, again, I've been doing some study on Costa Mesa and the sort of the demographics and psychographics and what's going on here in Costa Mesa. So let me give you a couple things that'll be pretty obvious as soon as you look around the room. Our community tends to be 25 to 50. And the vast majority of people, if we did a standard statistical bell curve, would fall in this room in that age range. That's who we tend to be. We tend to be what sociologists call somewhat non-traditional in our structure. And that is to say there's a lot of different kinds of households out there. Marrieds and unmarrieds and barely marrieds and living together. And he used to be my husband, but now I live with him again. I mean, there's all that kind of stuff going on out there. So this is not a highly traditional place like you would find in other places. It's somewhat non-traditional. But here's the part that's really important to me. And as I look around this room, it might not be true in this room, but it is true in our community. 52% of the people in our community live as singles. So do they get to hear a message on relationships? Like, like could a message like this count for them? Or when, what does it mean for you if you're single, never been married, divorced, or widowed? But 52% of the people in our community have never been married, they're divorced, or they're widowed. And I just wanna say publicly, out loud, sort of you know, putting a stake in the ground, that in Holy Trinity Church, single people are always going to count. 
and you're never going to be a second-class citizen. You are a human being who has all kinds of other relationships. You may not be dealing with a married one, but you might be dealing with kids or you might be dealing with stepkids. There's all kinds of things that you could be dealing with, and I just want you to know you count. And so any talk on relationship, of course, applies to you. All right, so now this, the title of this series is Some Practices for Trusting God and in Our Relationships. So I just want to give you a couple of practices. I think there's three here. But here's where we're going to sort of go beyond the sort of tip level. Here's the first thing. We learn to practice love, not desire. Now let me tell you what I mean by that, because knowing what love is is actually not easy in a, in a, in a whole nation, actually, that has confused desire for love. And they're not the same things. In fact, one woman went to her uh, uh, pastor and told him, you know, I'm, I'm really praying for my husband. Here's what I pray. I said, Lord, I pray for wisdom to understand my man. I pray for love to forgive him. I pray for patience for his moods. Because, Lord, if I pray for strength, I'll beat him to death. So love is not always easy. And here's the first thing you need to know, that love is not desire. And often the way, think of the way we use love. Like I'll say all the time around our dinner table, especially if Debbie's made Mexican, my favorite, I, I want, I don't know what it is. I guess it's because I don't drink beer or any kind of alcohol, not for religious reasons. I just don't like it. But I love root beer. So I'll say, I love root beer, especially a really good bottled root beer or I love German chocolate cake, or I love burritos, or whatever. Okay, when I use the word love that way, what do I actually mean? I want to use that thing. That root beer does not exist for me to do good to it. I want it to do good to me, <laughs> right? And some of you have a little stronger medication, so when you say I love whatever, you mean you want it to do something for you, meaning it exists for your good. But here's what transcends um, or excuse me, what transforms all of our relationships in the way we, we want to go in any kind of relationship is that you learn to love. And here's the definition of love. Love wills the good of the object in view. See, when I look at German chocolate cake, I don't will it's good. I want to destroy it. I want to cut it and fork it and eat it. And the more frosting, the better. I do not will it's good. And it doesn't take a rocket science to realize that this is what's happening in our culture regarding, if nothing else, sexuality, human sexuality. We don't know what love is anymore. We only know what desire is. We know what's hot. Um, we know what's sexy or sensual. But we've almost lost any capacity to actually will the good of the other. And this is what I mean about being for. Like, what if you were in a marriage in which you actually knew that no matter what, no matter what happens, there's one person on earth that is for me? What if you, uh, I, I say to my daughter, Carol, all the time, who's got your back? Why? Because I want her to know that there's at least two people in this world, her mom and I, who are for her. And that is extraordinarily healing. You know, it's extraordinarily good for the human soul to know that. What if you knew your boss was genuinely for you and you didn't have to go to work every day thinking that he's just looking for an excuse to use you, to condemn you so that he can then manipulate you, to criticize your work so that he can then sort of put you or she can put you in a box. It would literally transform all of human relationships if we could just get this one thing down, that love is not the same thing as desire. And that in fact, if you just think about it for a moment, 
unmet desire and the challenges, global and in marriages and friendships, surrounding unmet desires are at the root of almost all evil. They're at the root of wars, James says. They're at the root of marital fighting. They're at the root of parent and child conflicts. Somebody has an unmet desire, and here's the trick, catch this. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get the desire met. And once that happens, end of the relationship in any healthy way. Because you, by definition, then become an unsafe person. See, once you know your boss is willing to do anything to you in order to make his numbers for the vice president, how do you then feel? Completely unsafe. You shrivel as a human being. You don't blossom, and you blossom in a place of trust where you know someone is for you. And of course, this is what Paul's getting at in that famous passage in love in 1 Corinthians 13. I just want to read you a couple lines uh, from the message. Paul says, here's what real love is. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't force itself on others. Love isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle. It doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel. Love puts up with anything. It always looks for the best. It never looks back, but keeps going to the end. And of course, this is exactly how Jesus loved us. And if you think of that passage in John, I think it's 13, where Jesus says, here's how I want you to love. I want you to love others as. And that's the poignant word in the sentence, as. I want you to love others in the same manner in which I loved you. And how was that? Except for even sinners, even notorious sinners, prostitutes found in Jesus' presence something that they experienced is for their good. Even though he was completely holy and completely righteous, they still found in him something that was really good for them. All right, here's the second practice for trusting God in our relationships. First one, practice loving instead of desiring. Second one, practice giving instead of getting and demanding. And of course, you know, sometimes we, we confuse the two. I, I saw the story this week of, a, of a, a man whose dog died, and he took it to this Lutheran pastor wanting to have a burial for his dog. And the pastor said, gee, I'm sorry, buddy, but we Lutherans don't do funerals for dogs. He said, you might try the Baptist church down the street. Those, you know, those Baptists, they'll do anything. And so the man turned sadly away and said, gosh, I'm sorry you won't do my dog's funeral, but I understand. I guess I'll go down to the Baptist church. But can you tell me what's a proper memorial to give for the death of a dog? Because I was going to give the church a $10,000 memorial for my dog. And the pastor said, hey, you didn't tell me your dog was a Lutheran. (laughs) So you see, sometimes we confuse giving and getting. But if you think about it, you, again, you have to ask yourself, why would I give? Again, you can't sort of saying, you can't hear me and say, okay, I'm going to go out and be a giving person. Again, you can't. That's that sort of direct effort that will either frustrate you or make you into a Pharisee. What you have to do, and, and we're going to spend the rest of our lives working on this. As long as we're together doing this, here's what we're going to be working on. Our own spiritual transformation into likeness for the sake of others, for the sake of our community experiencing us as for their good. That's what this is all going to be about always. That's, that's just what we're doing here. And so what we have to do again is think through what kind of person would be naturally, routinely, and rather easily a giving person. 
Well, all you have to do is, I mean, not that I expect you to remember what I talked about last week, but if you just go back, if you can think about last week, and we talked about that what makes a human being safe, it's to understand that there's a reality that stands behind and transcends my fear about being a giving person. And so you have to ask yourself, why aren't you a giving person? And almost always it's because there's fear. There's fear that life is somehow a zero-sum game. And so if I've got 10 bucks and I give somebody five bucks, then I've now harmed myself. Well, that's true, unless you have this sort of previous understanding that God owns everything and that God said he would never let you suffer or be tested beyond what you could bear. So the secret to becoming a giving person rather than a getting and demanding person is to realize that the, what we started with this, what's the basis of our social relational reality? God and the Trinity. And so always the primary other, here's, here's the big trick, you guys. The way to do your relationships right in whatever it is, is to realize that your primary relationship is with God. And see, once you got that, once God is the primary other in your life, and you've got a good connection going there, and you're feeling his grace and security and love and all that, well, now you're just naturally a giving person. Let's, let's, put it, let's use a very concrete illustration. What kind of church allows another church to use their campus, to use their children's program for free, to give office space and storage space to help an Anglican church get started? What kind of independent megachurch would do that? One that is experiencing so much grace and goodness of God that they have nothing to fear. They're free. Once you've tapped into the goodness and grace of God, you become an essentially free person. And what goes along with freedom is things like generosity and otherliness and kindness and generosity and those sorts of things. But that only comes to people who somewhere deep in their inner being are safe. All right, here's the third one and we're done is practice otherliness. Or do you know the word altruism? Not a lot of people know that word, but it's actually a very beautiful word. To be altruistic means to give or to serve others with no expectation of ever being noticed or getting anything back. In fact, uh, when I talk about Three is Enough groups in my book and when I coach people on it, I always say that your Three is Enough group, let's say you're doing a Three is Enough group in the marketing department of Microsoft up in Seattle. I always tell them, do the best you can do and draw the least attention to yourself. Because as soon as you start doing good to draw attention to yourself, people get just totally scared of manipulation and probably they should. And so altruism means I never do anything for myself or to get anything back or to have any attention to myself. I practice that rather than selfishness. Now again, this is a hard one. I love this story. A married couple in their early 60s was out celebrating their 35th wedding anniversary. So they're out at this, you know, really nice restaurant, as you can imagine, romantic, quiet little place. And suddenly in this story, a tiny yet beautiful fairy appeared on their table, you know, a little fairy, and said, hey, for being such an exemplary married couple and for being faithful to each other for all these 35 years, I want to grant you each a wish. The woman says, oh, I want to travel around the world with my darling husband. And the fairy waved her magic wand and abracadabra, Two tickets for the newest luxury cruise liner appeared in her hands. The man said, whoa. He thought for a moment and said, well, this is all very romantic. And an opportunity like this only occurs once in a lifetime. So I'm sorry, my love, but my wish is to have a wife 30 years younger than me. 
So the wife and the fairy were deeply disappointed, but a wish is a wish. And so the fairy tale waved her magic wand and abracadabra, the man became 92 years old. <laughs> so if, if, we're going to be, if we're going to become the kinds of people for whom ethical and loving and giving relationships are the norm, we have to become the kinds of people who would. So now you have to ask yourself, how would we do that? And let me tell you for what over the last 17 years that I've been thinking about this stuff and pursuing spiritual formation in this way, here's what works for me, is to ask yourself first a very fundamental question, what is God's purpose for human beings? So I can do this in 30 seconds and we're done. Why did God create Adam and Eve? He said, come work with me. Be with me. You guys be together. You're bone of bone, flesh of flesh. You guys be together, but you come with me and work with me in this amazing new creation I've just created. Rule and reign with me. Be my people in this and, and help me take care of creation. Well, you know the biblical story. Things go south really fast, you know, the snake and the sin and blah, 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 you know. Things go south really fast. And God raises up in Genesis 12, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and God says to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless you so much that your descendants are gonna be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And I'm gonna protect you. If anybody comes against you to harm you, I'll defeat them on your behalf. God goes on and on promising how he'll bless them and enrich them. Why? Genesis 12:3 says, so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the earth. So why'd God create Adam and Eve? To be a blessing in his creation. Why did God create Abraham and Israel? In a sense, to be God's rescue agents. They were sort of God's first responders. They were the EMT, the fire department, the police squad, the cosmos, you know, first responders of God to be agents of healing and agents of fixing injustice and this sort of thing. And then you just have to ask yourself, why did God create the church? Why Pentecost? Why did God create, recreate Israel in this thing called the church and send the power of the Holy Spirit? The same thing Jesus said. I want you to what? Love what? As in the manner I loved you. And that is, I didn't want anything from you. I wasn't desiring you in that sense. I didn't call you to use you in a way that would shrivel you. I called you so that you could follow me and be humanity as God intended. And as you become humanity as in God intended, understanding this big story then your relationships come into place. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.